It's Thursday, March the 2nd, 2023, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'm not the only fellow who does podcasts, however. If you don't believe me, go to our website and check it out yourself. Go to hoover.org, click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Go over to where it says multimedia, and up will pop the podcast. You can sign up for any or all of them if you want to. I also encourage you to sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcast to your inbox each month. My guest today is Michael Hartney. Michael is a Hoover Fellow and Adjunct Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and an Assistant Professor of Political Science at Boston College. His scholarly expertise is in American politics and public policy with a focus on state and local governments, interest groups, and K-12 education politics and policy. Last year, the University of Chicago Press published Michael Hartney's first book. Its title is How Policies Make Interest Groups, Governments, Unions, and American Education. The book examines the origin, power, and activities of America's teachers' unions. And it details how state and local governments subsidize teachers' unions, political organizing efforts, enabling them to wield outsized influence in education policymaking. Michael, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back with you. So uh, we wanted to talk today about teachers' unions, and the timing here is outstanding because there was an election in Chicago on Tuesday night. I don't want to call it a political earthquake. That is a very overused phrase in politics, much like wave. I get sick of hearing wave every two to four years. Michael, I don't know about you. I also get tired of earthquake or not, but there was a, let's call it a serious seismic event in Chicago. In this regard, the incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot, she finished third uh, in the primary, uh, only about 17% of the citywide vote, I believe. It's the first time in 40 years that Chicago has uh, kicked an incumbent mayor to the curb. Jane Byrne in 1983 is the answer to that trivia question. Uh, Lightfoot's defeat's even more staggering considering she was the first African-American woman mayor of Chicago, the first openly LGBTQ mayor of Chicago. Uh, she had a rather curious four-year ride. She had to deal with the pandemic, obviously. Um, she also had to deal with crime, which is pretty much her undoing in this election. Violent crime in Chicago is up about 40% since she took office, and so down she went. Michael, the results go as follows, and forgive me for filibustering here. The leading vote-getter was a gentleman named Paul Vallis, who is a former Chicago Public Schools CEO. He's promised if elected to keep school buildings open on nights and weekends. This is kind of his connection between education and crime, uh, to put alternative high schools into empty or under-enrolled buildings and also create more charter schools. His opponent is a gentleman named Brandon Johnson, who is a Cook County commissioner endorsed by the California Teachers Unions. And I know you want to explain a little bit more of Johnson to us. Background on Chicago, Michael. Chicago is the nation's third largest school system, 635 schools, 332,000 kids. The winner, by the way, of this race will be the last mayor to have control of Chicago public schools before district transitions to being governed by an elected school board. So what we have here in short, Michael, is a mayor's race that was driven by crime, but actually turns out to be a pretty interesting referendum on education and the power of teachers unions, because you have one candidate, Mr. Vallis, the, the front runner, who is not popular with the teachers unions, and the second place finisher, surprise second place finisher, is a guy who is completely embraced by the teachers unions. And with that, Michael, go. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think uh, I'd have to go back to the mayoral election in Washington, D.C., uh, when Adrian Fenty, the incumbent um, African-American mayor there, who had um, appointed Michelle Rhee, um, and you saw a lot of uh, dramatic reforms in Washington, D.C., to think of a mayoral election um, that at least was influenced by education. I would agree with you that crime was probably first and foremost on voters' minds. But when we think about this sort of stunning defeat of Lori Lightfoot, I mean, an incumbent mayor who doesn't even make the runoff, that's quite significant. Right. It really turns on the fact that Lightfoot had alienated all of the important constituencies in Chicago. I mean, most obviously, the police unions were not happy with her, but then neither were the teachers unions. Um, much like what we saw during the pandemic in, say, San Francisco, where the mayor uh, in San Francisco grew tired of the union's uh, unwillingness to return to in-person learning and the school board's fecklessness around making that happen. Lightfoot eventually grew tired uh, of the Chicago Teachers Union's unwillingness to um, uh, broker a reasonable negotiation to get back to in-person learning. And so, you know, if you're a Democratic candidate um, and you lose uh, public sector unions in a city like Chicago, uh, it's going to be tough sledding for you to win re-election. So I think this was sort of 
in some ways her fate was sealed. Um, but of course it was also complicated by the fact that it was such a crowded field. Right. Um, and so, you know, the African-American vote um, uh, with Brandon Johnson also being another African-American candidate uh, probably split there as well. So some idiosyncratic factors, but I think it's certainly fair to say that education was a relevant issue, even if crime was, was the number one issue on folks' minds. Right. It was a uh, nine candidates in that uh, primary. She finished third, as I mentioned, with about 17 percent. Um, uh, a little bit of a background on her relationship with the Chicago Teachers Unions. And let's talk a bit about what's happened to Chicago, Michael. Um, during her four years, she had to endure, first of all, a two-week teacher strike in October 2019. That was over the issue of pay. Uh, she had to deal with a strike in early January 2022, primarily over COVID screening. And between that, as you mentioned, she had a very public fight with the teachers union over a return to in-person learning. Uh, she wasn't just frustrated. She was angry, boiled over to the point where she actually uh, said in a debate that the Chicago Teachers Union had brought in the word she used was, quote, chaos to the city school system. Yeah, and this goes back a long way, uh, all the way to um, uh, the t the tenure of uh, former Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Right. Um, you had a um, there's a great documentary out. In fact, I'd recommend to listeners um, called Local One that covers the sort of rise of the modern militant wing of the Chicago Teachers Union. And this occurred when Karen Lewis uh, became president and, and sort of the internal politics of the union are quite interesting because uh, under Lewis's leadership and in subsequent um, and, and under subsequent leaders after Lewis's tenure, the union has really gone um, away from simply trying to negotiate for bread and butter issues like better pay and better benefits. I mean, they're asking for that, but they've also really become sort of a catch-all progressive political organization with roots in in sort of uh, democratic socialism. Their their agenda is much broader. Uh, it, it's not your grandfather's uh, labor union. It's not Samuel Gompers just asking for more. It's wanting to really revolutionize uh, not just education, but public policy in, in Chicago. And, and that matters a great deal. The chaos that Lightfoot's referring to here, of course, is much like what we saw in Los Angeles and other cities where the teachers unions have moved in this direction of being more than just about bread and butter issues. You right. saw the union in Chicago, in Los Angeles, saying, look, um, part of our calculus on whether we're going to agree to reopen schools, whether we're going to agree as labor to return to the classroom is not just predicated on the pay increase that you offer us. But, you know, you're hearing things like Medicare for all. And uh, uh, what are you going to do for parental leave and these broader issues that most folks would say don't have a lot to do with sort of the day to day functioning of the schools and the occupational interests of the teachers themselves? Right. So a city like Chicago, Michael, it as the mayor is actually a very strong office. Uh, we think of Richard Daly. Uh, if you go back to that 1983 primary where the incumbent mayor, Jane Byrne, loses, she loses in part because Daly's son is also on the ballot and he takes away uh, uh, votes when he finishes third. Uh, but unlike Los Angeles, where constitutionally the mayor's office is not a strong office, this is a strong office. And yet we have seen the teachers union really chip away uh, at a mayor, made her look weak and contributed to her family. How did the teachers union gain power in Chicago? In other words, how, how did they create the potency they have right now? Is it very, was it very slow and measured over time? Was there willingness on the part of political leaders? How, how did they pull this off? I mean, you have to look at it as a symbiotic relationship mm -hmm. uh, between elected officials, both in Springfield um, but also over the years in Chicago, um, in which, you know, the campaign support, the political muscle that's provided by uh, all of the employees in the system is a very valuable chip in advancing one's political career. And um, until recently, uh, Chicago was one of just two cities, I think the other being Milwaukee, that actually required all of its teachers to live in the boundaries of the city. And that matters because unlike a lot of places where the teachers may live outside of the city, they're all going to be, I mean, they all won't necessarily turn out to vote, but they're all certainly eligible to vote uh, in city elections because they all live in the city. So um, to some extent, it's the attractiveness of the of the coalition block. If you're a, uh, an aspiring um, politician uh, and in Chicago, we I was going to say on the Democratic side, but in Chicago, it's almost always on the Democratic side. Right. Um, but then you sort of have kind of this um, come to Jesus moment when you actually get elected to office and you realize just how far they're going to push you. So you might sort of have a, a, a reasonable or a cozy relationship uh, when you get into office, but then political executives in some ways, you know, they have to be thinking about broader constituencies, especially when they want to mount a re-election campaign. 
And school closures for a year are not popular. Uh, strikes are not popular. And so, you know, there's a natural tendency for uh, someone like a Lightfoot um, to grow tired of uh, of the union always saying more, more, more. Um, so I think this is just kind of a cyclical thing, and, and we're going to continue to see it. What will be interesting, of course, is if Vallis is to win, he'll obviously come into office not with sort of any mandate to do the bidding of the teachers union, but um, he's walking into a perfect storm. In some ways, it's a it's almost a a way of looking at it as who wants this job because. Unlike his predecessors, um, you referenced him being appointed in 1995 as the CEO of Chicago Schools, and that was really a foundational moment because it was the end uh, or, or it was a signaling of strong mayoral control over the school system as the mayor could just handpick the superintendent. And while they have a school board, it's appointed by the mayor and its powers are quite limited. Vallis is walking into a situation, should he be the winner, where he's going to have to deal with an elected school board of 20 something members that will all have their own narrow parochial interests in their in their little districts. And there's no reason to think that the teachers union won't be the most dominant player in deciding who those school board members are. So it's really, in many ways, quite an unenviable position uh, to be taking over um, the mayor's office, at, at least on the issue of education. And we could also say probably for crime, given what's been going on in Chicago, too. Right. So I assume Chicago Teachers Union will do what they can to turn out every vote they can in April in the runoff to get uh, Brandon Johnson over the threshold. But tell me, Michael, who is Brandon Johnson? So Brandon Johnson is actually a former deputy political director for the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, oh, fancy, <laughs> yeah. Fancy way of saying lobbyists. You know, this isn't unprecedented in American uh, politics. You know, you could go uh, in the 1990s, for example, the long serving uh um, executive director of the Alabama Education Association, one of the strongest teachers unions in the country back then, uh, was the Democratic nominee for governor. So there's a, you know, there's a pattern of drawing talent uh, out of particularly the large unions like a Chicago teachers union to run for office. So it's not unprecedented. Um, but what is quite unprecedented is if you kind of follow the money here, there's been a lot of reporting recently that suggests that the Chicago teachers union has been making loans from members dues directly over to its political action committee to fund Johnson's campaign. So this is still to be adjudicated and the state election boards that uh, see to it that everything is on the up and up, even in Chicago, in theory, are looking into this. So um, but I think there are implications there because, you know, not all teachers in Chicago presumably uh, would want their dues going to support Brandon Johnson. This isn't necessarily something uh, they voted on. Uh, and yeah, so, I mean, uh, he's certainly um, going to be doing their bidding if he uh, is elected to office. That was my next question. If he is elected to office, what exactly is their bidding? Well, I mean, he'll I mean, push I mean, obviously, obviously things like salaries and work hours and conditions, classroom sizes, things like that. But what what would they really want out of him? Well, he's very simpatico with them on their broader, more progressive agenda for the city. Right. Um He's, uh, you know, fully aligned with the uh, notions of restorative justice and and the opposite of sort of tough discipline policies in schools, which I actually think we don't have good polling data on this, but I suspect cuts both ways. While there are, you know, progressive teacher union members who are uh, in favor of those more lax discipline policies, I think there are also a lot of teachers, particularly teachers that they might want to recruit into the system that are a lot more concerned with uh, um, classroom management and being able to go to school and teach in safety and deliver instruction uh, without disruption in their classroom. So I'm not necessarily convinced that the full policy prescription that Johnson will go after is going to be popular with every rank and file teacher, but it's certainly popular with those who hold power in the union right now. Mm -hmm. And Vallis, Vallis, who got 34%, he's leading vote getter. If he wins, what does he do? I think he's going to push um, for more, um, as much uh, charter schooling as possible. You know, maybe we'll return to some of these very contentious debates uh, um, in Chicago about school closures, because, you know, anyone who looks at the data can see quite clearly that Chicago has had, much like L.A., uh, a massive decline in student enrollment. And it's not just a pandemic era decline. It's a secular decline. And some of that, yes, has to do with birth rates, but some of it has to do with disillusionment in the education that the city is offering. And yet, of course, the teachers unions and uh, candidates like uh, Brandon Johnson are arguing for more resources to right. go into schools and not funding schools based on how many students 
choose to attend a given neighborhood school. So, you know, um, the chickens are going to come home to roost at some point. You can't keep pouring resources into a district that's losing students. And I think Vallis will be um, much more realistic about that. But that will invariably bring on fights that have to do with with school closures. And that's what got Rahm Emanuel in such hot water with the Chicago Teachers Union. And also, you know, to be fair with many community activists and and regular voters who, for them, understandably, losing a school in your community is a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot better to have a school, even for the, in their perspective, that has folks in the building than an empty, hollowed out place where bad things can happen after school hours. Um, but fiscally, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And if you look back, say, to what happened in Washington, D.C., that was the undoing of Michelle Rhee. Um, in many ways, if you look at Newark, New Jersey, uh, when Chris Christie got involved there with Cory Booker, again, the school closure issue always rears its head. But these large urban districts at some point have to have a serious conversation about the decline of enrollment relative to resources. Let's uh, thank you for mentioning Los Angeles. Let's shift to Los Angeles, home of um, the second largest school district, Chicago being third, LA being two. I'm going to read to you, Michael, um, some words recently written by the Los Angeles Times. This is not me editorializing. This is exactly verbatim what the LA Times wrote. Quote, when LA school superintendent Alberto Calvajal tried to extend the academic year, the teachers union stopped him. When his predecessor, Austin Butner wanted more live Zoom teaching during the pandemic, the union also stopped him. And when the district was preparing to reopen campuses for in-person learning, the union demanded the teachers first have the opportunity to be fully immunized against COVID-19. Michael, what they're referring to is United Teachers Los Angeles is about a 35,000-member union of teachers, counselors, librarians, and nurses. Um, they seem to be very hard-nosed to be polite about it. Well, and everything you just said, is that not the opposite of essential workers? Yes. Uh, I mean, the notion that during a once in a lifetime pandemic, when all hands needed to be on deck to do what could be done to mitigate student learning loss mm -hmm. and sort of uh, what's at the center of your negotiating strategy is a unwillingness or a, a demand to bargain over working a couple of extra days for which you would be paid, by the way. And uh, these days that were proposed by the superintendent, uh, the previous superintendent, were going to be voluntary in nature. So, you know, if that's your starting point for negotiation, it's a it's a pretty good indicator of just how um, uh, out of the mainstream the union's policy positions are. Again, this was a union that during the pandemic was saying Medicare for all, was saying every sort of progressive wish list under the sun is our starting point for negotiating school reopenings. Yeah, um, I think you could argue, Michael, the the to extent that UTLA, United Teachers Los Angeles, engages in these, these flexes, you might call them, this goes back to January 2019. And what happened in LA January 2019, teachers there went on strike for six days. And it's an interesting question to me, Michael, as to whether or not they're winning the battle and winning the war in this regard. They may have lost that battle in this regard. They did get concessions on class sizes uh, when that strike was ended, but they didn't get higher pay and they didn't get better benefits. So you can argue that maybe they lost that battle, but the question would be, are they winning the war? Because again, we recite all of these conditions they let out during the pandemic, these, these, you know, these, these absolutes they had to have. Um, so that, that shows me that they, they are very, they're hard nosed and they're negotiating and they feel like they have the upper hand. Now, maybe they feel politically, they have the upper hand. Maybe they feel morally in terms of public opinion, they have the upper hand. Well, there's always in these sorts of negotiations and you're right, you know, in the 2019 case, um, they did not win um, some big pay increase. Uh, it was more around personnel and class size, which goes, by the way, it's worth saying to a larger problem in American education right now, which is that we've invested in teacher quantity, not teacher quality. The number of hires, not just of teachers, but of staff, ancillary staff, paraprofessionals uh, is through the roof, despite the fact that enrollments are down. Well, if you hire more people and you have a set pool of money to pay, it's going to mean less money for raises for teachers. So, you know, that's the direction the union's gone. And, and I think in some ways it relates to the fact that A, teachers uh, like smaller class sizes. It's also politically easier to sell that it's about uh, the kids. Uh, right. It's what's popular. Um, but I think something else is going on in LA, which is worth thinking about. And, and it contrasts with Chicago, at least from the numbers that I've looked at, which is that turnout in the teacher, in the election for the president of the Teachers Union in Los Angeles was below 30%. Actually, yeah. ironically enough, very similar to the turnout in the Chicago mayoral's election. But the turnout in um, 
the union election in Chicago was significantly higher. I think I looked the other day that 16, 17,000 votes out of 21,000 teachers. So um, I haven't drilled down into that too much, but I think it's worth at least being aware of because when you see the union in LA lobbying for X, Y, and Z, one wonders um, how much fidelity their agenda has to what is popular among all teachers in LA, given the low rates of turnout in those elections. I'm not saying it's unpopular, but it certainly gives cause for wondering. Uh, the union talks a lot about democracy, but those aren't turnout numbers that I'd be particularly proud of in those elections. So one challenge with UTLA in Los Angeles, Michael, is uh, one of membership. Uh, they have lost about 12 and a half percent, I should say, actually, about 12 and a half percent of eligible workers have opted out of joining that union. And that's because the Supreme Court's barred mandatory membership of public employees unions. Let's shift now and talk a little bit about that. June the 27th of this year is the fifth anniversary of the Supreme Court uh, ruling in Janus versus the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The court ruling that the concept of mandatory membership dues was unconstitutional as it violated the First Amendment as it forced individuals to support the union's political speech. Uh, tell us a bit about the impact. We're now five years after Janus. Yeah, so I think folks were surprised in the first year or two uh, looking at numbers um, of public sector union members, and we didn't see any sort of precipitous drop. Um, you know, there were a couple states, Wisconsin had huge drops, Michigan had huge drops, but those really predated Janus uh, and hinged on other legislative actions that were taken to weaken union power in those states. But when it, it comes to Janus in particular, I think a few things are going on. One is generational. So where the union is now facing a challenge is when a new teacher is hired into the district. Right. Um, and the calculus looks a lot different when you sit down with HR as a new employee and you're told, you know, your salary will look like X if you're a union member and it will look like Y if you're not. And that thousand dollars right there, you know, is pretty dramatic, especially on a very modest starting salary for a teacher in these districts. Um. But on the other hand, for veteran teachers who've already seen that money going out of their paycheck, it, it's a there's a lot. Uh, I think it's less sort of apparent to them. They've gotten used to the the lighter paycheck over the years, and I think there was a certain level of defiance. The court is doing this, and we're going to stand up to it. But I think you're finally starting to see some drop off, particularly among the new hires. Um, but where I think this story is really interesting is the fact we've already talked about this a little bit, but the fact that you have several of these large teachers unions um, continuing to be more than a union, that is not just focusing on bread and butter issues of salary and benefits and sort of um, focusing on this large panoply of political issues that may or may not align with what a lot of their um, prospective members might want. Well, before Janice, it didn't really matter if teachers unions went off the reservation and wanted to engage in this sort of um, uh, kabuki theater of, uh, of progressive politics. Because they already knew that teachers that were hired into the district were going to either have to be members or pay them dues. But the calculus looks a lot different post-Janus. So in some sense, it surprises me, given the membership losses you've seen. I mean, they've not been crazy in Los Angeles, but they've lost members. Uh, that they're not trying to return to a focus on bread and butter issues alone for members, because that would seem to be the safest path right. to retaining members going forward. But we'll have to see how that unfolds. Have you seen any impact on the likes of the California Teachers Association, which I would argue is probably the most powerful lobby in California, uh, in that they have the issue of education, but secondly, because they have union dues, they have a political war chest, it's a replenishable stream, and they put that to use? Not significantly. I mean, the state, for example, going back to that symbiotic relationship, uh, right. their, their Democratic friends in the state legislature soon after Janice was uh, um, handed down from the court, the state passed a law that literally requires all school local school districts to put time uh, on the faculty meeting for new hires for the union to do its dog and pony show. So you know, that's not as nice of a perk as just saying all teachers have to pay to the union. But the state's doing what it can to make sure that the union is able to continue on. And the other thing I would say uh, is that their political power or their power to continue to grow membership, even if they're losing members as a percentage, that is sort of the percentage of eligible teachers who are members, so long as they can con convince the state to increase hires of school staff. Right. They'll increase their raw number of members. So that's why it's so important for them. Perhaps that helps explain in some ways why they've been so focused 
on bargaining for more uh, employees than necessarily simply bargaining for higher salaries for a smaller number of employees. Because if the fraction of folks you can convince to become members is going to dip a bit, it's better to just have more school employees because you're going to get more union members. Yeah, and one thing I point out about California and the CTA, um, sure, they put money into legislative races, but look, the state is a two to one Democratic in voter registration. So unless you're dealing with unusually competitive districts, it's pretty much, you know, easy, easy investment of your the union. Uh, it's been a while since we've had a real knock, knock them down, drag them out ballot fight involving education, such as uh uh, teacher tenure, which we had in 2005 school choice, which we had a couple of times. So that would be one test of uh, of unions potency. Uh, question for you, Michael. I don't know if you've looked at any surveys on teachers or not, but you know, getting back to California politics for a minute, um, there's a rule of thumb, especially when you do initiative politics, you do an ad, you want to showcase the people who wear the, the, the white hats in society. So you tried out a firefighter and an educator. Those are the good people. Are there any signs you've seen from polling or indications, given the pandemic, given the lockdown, given the the fights over reopening? Has the image of teachers or teachers unions taken a hit? I think it's very much a story of red and blue here. Mm -hmm. um, I, in fact, I was just looking at uh, data from uh, Gallup's long running survey that goes back to the 1970s that asks about Americans' trust in different uh, institutions in our society, from the military to police to our public schools. Right. And we right now are sitting at the largest divergence between Democrats and Republicans in terms of trust in our public education system, historic lows for Republicans, and uh, if not historic, quite near highs for Democrats. And I think that tells you something. I mean, what I see in the data are what I kind of call a very angry 30%, mm -hmm. um, an angry 30% of parents, which is enough to make noise, which is enough to create some of these new education advocacy groups right. uh, that have moved from the pandemic issues to embracing school choice and pushing uh, for uh, more of a seat for parents at the table, not just unions. But what remains to be seen is if that 30% is enough to move the needle. I suspect that in a state like California, it's not, perhaps maybe in some pockets of the state that are a little more red, uh, they certainly aren't red, but a little more, they're not deep blue. You may see some success in recruiting uh, parent-friendly or union-skeptical candidates to school boards, but I've just wrapped up looking at the numbers for 2022 uh, in the local school board elections in California, and despite a significant effort from parent groups to get their candidates elected and to counterbalance union power, Teachers unions did very well in 2022, um, so far as I can tell, on par with their historic win rates of about seven out of every 10 competitive local school board elections where they make an endorsement. So I don't think teachers unions are paying a huge price, mm -hmm. um, and I, I certainly think that teachers remain popular. I think part of that is that a lot of voters in these local elections, they look and they say, oh, the such and such education association or teachers association is endorsing this candidate. And a lot of them think of it as a good governance group. They don't necessarily understand that it's a labor union linked to the strongest political powerhouse in the state of California in Sacramento. And I think some of that leads to an advantage for the union in these elections and an ability for them to buffer um, what otherwise might be some criticism. Yeah, I'd also be curious, Michael, see polling uh, on teachers themselves, their attitudes, their leanings, and so forth. A generation ago, I don't think teachers would have struck in the middle of a school year, but yet we've seen it in Los Angeles and Chicago, other cities in America where they've walked out and left kids hanging for a week or so. And this, to me, suggests something of a sea change. Now, maybe this is the union's driving things, not teachers themselves, but the teachers are out there on the picket lines, you know, screaming and shouting, wanting change. Yeah, I think there's an opportunity for conservatives here. I mean, I'm not I don't want to I'm not Pollyannish and I'm not right. suggesting that by offering, you know, a couple bullet point ideas that suddenly teachers are going to move into the Republican aisle. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to see more Republican state executives, more leaders. I, I, I fully embrace all of the um, efforts to enact choice. I think that's great. But I also think they should learn from um, what, say, Governor DeSantis has been doing in Florida, which is despite kind of the rhetoric down there that he's making enemies out of teachers and teachers unions. Right. He's also been out on the stump pushing for and enacting teacher pay increases because we know that since the Great Recession, teacher salaries in the United States after accounting for inflation have been pretty stagnant. So I think there is a lane there for Republicans that if they kind of put their heads down and say, look, we embrace choice, 
We're not for kind of this woke nonsense in education. You know, the Bill Bennett playbook, uh, the three R's. We want to focus on reading, writing, and arithmetic. Do that, but also come out and say, you know, kind of a teacher's bill of rights, if you will. We support higher pay, higher starting pay in particular. Um, we're for discipline policies that allow you to control your classroom and not feel threatened by right. a student who's going to hit you and be back in the classroom a few, a few minutes later. I think if Republicans bring some of that onto their agenda, they will make inroads with 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 a lot of teachers who are either independents or, or lean Republican. Let's talk about DeSantis. Uh, he may or may not run for president. He, to me, Michael, he sure looks like a presidential candidate in a couple of regards. He uh, he is out promoting a book right now. He is uh, going to be here in California on Sunday, I think, in Orange County to uh, attend a local county fundraiser. He's in Texas, other places making the rounds with the book. But this is what you do in a build up to a run. Um, it's worth mentioning in this regard. Let me clarify before we go further. Uh, the Hoover Institution doesn't endorse candidates. We are a .org. We stay out of these things. So this is not a DeSantis endorsement. We're just talking about him in this regard. He may run for president, and there's an opportunity for education to really come forward in this um, election in this regard. Um, federal elections generally don't get into education in America. I think you have to go back, Michael, to maybe George Bush in 2000 uh, with no child left behind, uh, uh, to, who you know, showcased education, but there it was kind of a friendly approach to education, kind of touchy-feely. And indeed, his first year in office, that was his big achievement. It was bringing Democrats and Republicans together to get uh, uh, No Child Left Behind passed. But here in DeSantis, you have a guy who has done battle uh, with the education establishment. And you're right. You read about this in other states. It gets into some very ugly shorthand uh, through some media outlets about how he wants to do this and that to teachers. Uh, one thing that caught my attention is uh, there is a bill right now in Florida. It's called the Teacher's Bill of Rights in Florida. Let me read the highlights of this, Michael, and get your thoughts. This Florida bill would, A, prohibit any union representing public employees from having its dues and assessments deducted by the public employee's employer. B, it will require employees to submit a form acknowledging that Florida is a right-to-work state and union participation is optional. C, it would require school unions to annually notify members of the cost of membership. D, it would prohibit the distribution of union materials at the workplace. E, union bosses would not be paid uh, higher wages than union members. And then finally, F, it would ban union work while on the clock for taxpayer-funded work. Uh, this sounds like pretty potent stuff if you're running in Iowa and New Hampshire, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious when we go back to the state of Florida, how much of this is really an issue in Florida? I think this is the governor trying to say, and if you listen to him when he talks about the teachers unions in the United States. Right. He says, look, this is a partisan interest group. There's no, you know, there's no two ways about it. They may be officially nonpartisan, but if you look at their donations, they're 90% going to Democrats. And it's been that way for decades. And his point is very simple. If you're a partisan private interest group, mm -hmm. in his view, the state shouldn't be doing you any favors to make you a more formidable interest group. Right. Now, in the abstract, that seems quite uncontroversial. Uh, I don't think anyone, say, on the political left that opposes charter schools would be in favor of school districts subsidizing charter school advocacy groups to make their lobbying job easier and to make them more of an effective advocate in education politics debates. But that's what we've done when it comes to teachers unions in this country for 30 years uh, through a variety of policies. And I'll just pick one that you mentioned. Uh, the governor says, look, local school districts are government public entities. Right. Why should they be in the business of collecting dues and PAC donations for a private interest group through payroll deduction? And you could say, well, the teacher's deciding to do that, but that's a tremendous advantage for a private interest group that's trying to put its thumb on the scale in these public policy debates. And the governor says, no, I have no problem if you want to join a, a, a teacher's union, if you want to be active in these debates, you have every constitutional right to do that. But the taxpayer is not going to make that job easier for you, just as it doesn't for any other organization. So there's that issue on the one hand. I think the other issue is that there's a little bit of calling out the teacher's union here in terms of their proclivity to say that they are in the vanguard of protecting democracy. You'll oftentimes hear the unions couch what they do as uh, enhancing, quote, workplace democracy, giving employees more of a voice. But then why is it the case that in almost every state around the country, including Florida, that has collective bargaining, 
that once a collective bargaining agent is chosen, once teachers vote in a union, how come it's the case that that certification of that union, government giving it that privilege to negotiate, exists then in perpetuity? I mean, even members of Congress have to go back before the voters every two years. So I think, you know, Scott Walker did this in Wisconsin and it was extremely controversial. But if you step back, all the governor did in Wisconsin was say, every year you need to go back to your members and make sure they want to be represented by you. So when DeSantis, you know, says, we're going to make sure that if we're going to allow a local teachers union to have that special seat at the table and negotiate with the school board, we're going to make sure that a big majority of teachers want that. That seems to be very small D democratic to me. So I find there to be a lot of irony here in people embra embracing the mantle of democracy. It seems much more to me that like much of politics, um, it's a uh, it's a strife of interests masquerading as a contest of principles, but it's really about interests. I think you just described Randy Weingarten, who, uh, for those not familiar, she is the president of the American Federation of Teachers. And if you're a news hound, you probably saw her on uh, Tuesday of this week. She was on the uh, steps of the Supreme Court, Michael. Uh, she was about two steps shy of, of uh, being hysterical. And she was just screaming and yelling about the court considering uh, student loans, just Absolutely, just almost spinning out of control. And getting back to DeSantis, uh, if you are making a calculation that in part teachers unions and labor are going to be a convenient foil for her, you want to capture what Weingarten said and turn it into a one-minute ad as to what is wrong with unions in America. But what would possess her, Michael, to go to the steps of the Supreme Court and engage in that kind of you know performance art? Look, this is the interest group uh, universe that we're in right now. And to be fair, it's it's something that's true on both the right and the left. And I'll give you uh, three examples right. that I've been using. Look at the NRA, look at the ACLU, and look at the teachers union. Historically, these were three interest groups that were kind of these single issue interest groups. You know, the union focused on education. The NRA was just about members of Congress voting records on guns. And the ACLU was a, a very balanced uh, defender of free speech, a civil liber libertarian group. But in this, in this partisan era of polarization, what you've seen is that these groups are really just now part of a larger ecosystem of left and right uh, interest groups. Uh, and so I think the calculus there is that Weingarten, you know, that's what it means to be the Democratic Party today. I mean, the teachers union is a policy demanding group that thinks it can do better politically when it's firmly ensconced as an ally in that broader progressive movement on the left. That's the calculus it's making. It doesn't work out so well for them, though, uh, when you have a flip in governing power and you move to a trifecta where, say, a state had been controlled for Democrats or split power for a long time, and then suddenly Republicans take power because expectedly, we would think Republicans would come in and say, okay, you're very clear about who you support politically. We're going to do what we can to limit your, your effectiveness. Um, right. On the Weingarten thing, though, I can't help but just note and um, how opponents um, that want to sort of paint a picture of where they stand opposite to her would be very wise to come in and say, look, um, the particulars of student loans, putting that aside, wouldn't it have been a very different universe if Randy Weingarten had shown that sort of passion for trying to reopen schools a year and a half ago? Right. No, that's well put. Uh, so Ron DeSantis may or may not run for president. Somebody who has declared his candidacy, though, is one Donald J. Trump. You might remember him. Michael, he's a former president of the United States. And Mr. Trump has a school plan out, but what's interesting about it, Michael, is it doesn't really get much into unions as DeSantis' interests are. It's really anti-wokeism. Trump calls for cutting federal funding for any school or program that includes, quote, critical race theory, gender ideology, or other inappropriate racial, sexual, or political content onto our children. He also promises to, quote, keep men out of women's sports. So here is, here is education, but as a culture warrior. Here's the problem. No matter what position one has on the the issues that you just laid out, we already know uh, from No Child Left Behind just how difficult it is for the federal government through the levers that it has to drill down and affect change inside the school building. If we could barely do it when it came to trying to make sure every fourth and eighth grader was tested and proficient in math and reading just to collect the data and do the testing, that was a huge obstacle to get local school districts on board with that. Right. The idea that 
you're going to have the federal government being able to get into the weeds on those sort of issues of curriculum mm -hmm. uh, is a bit fanciful to the extent that conservatives want to push back on what they perceive as biased instruction uh, or what they um, are uncomfortable with in terms of, say, um, uh, teaching around uh, sexuality and, and public health in, in schools. That's something that's going to have to be done at the state level. And you've seen Governor DeSantis um, pursuing that in multiple ways in Florida. So I don't really see that going very far at the federal level. It makes for good political talking points in a Republican primary, though, perhaps. It does. But if you're a school union, uh, teachers union, Michael, you have a choice here. And the choice at all times is how do you want to use your ammo? Do you want to use your ammo engaging in something like critical race theory? Or do you want to use your ammo when it comes to issues of teachers paying classroom conditions reopening? And I think, I think you're Notice is a rather leading question, but this to me is really an interesting question for teachers unions moving forward. We get into these these culture issues. Um, they're complicated, they're messy, and not always easy for you know teachers and educrats to explain. Yeah, so it's it's all going to come down to the framing here, and right. the unions want to frame this as an issue, and you already see them making an effort to do that in Florida as an issue of um, free speech, uh, of an issue of book banning. I mean, book banning has a very negative connotation. So if they can make the issue about book banning ra rather than uh, a much broader uh, uh, debate over, well, how should we be teaching American history or how should we be teaching African-American history if we're going to have a specialized class on that? Should there be balance or should it be ideological? That's a debate they don't want to have because I think from the polling data I've seen at the high school level, the vast majority of parents in both political parties want to see it all taught. Okay. But at the, at the level of um, kindergarten or elementary school, parents of all political stripes don't want any discussion of sexuality in the classroom, heterosexuality, homosexual, they just don't want it being discussed. And the polling data on that is crystal clear. So the unions are going to do what they can to make sure that's not how the issue is framed and conservatives like, a Governor DeSantis are going to try to, in these debates, remind the media isn't going to necessarily cover it fairly, but they're going to try to remind uh, voters that what their bill really is about is about taking a position that's consistent with what 70 percent of the public feels that for the most part, schools should be teaching the basics and graduating kids ready for college and career, not engaging in sort of political struggle sessions. But it'll come down to the framing. So tell us what the future looks like for school choice and charter schools, two hot buttons for uh, teachers unions. Well, the choice issue is really shaping up right now to be one in which uh, proponents can lay claim to a lot of victories. I mean, you're seeing it happen on an almost daily basis around the country in red states. Right. But the problem here is that historically, at least on the charter school side of things, that the most successful charter schools and uh, the places that have the most charter market share are usually located in blue cities, in blue states, or at least in blue cities, even if they're in red states. And so the politics in those places, like a Los Angeles, are not great right now for choice because not everywhere. I mean, you've seen, let me give two examples where maybe it's a little bit different. Like in Illinois, you've seen the governor there kind of back off on a very modest uh, private school choice scholarship program that exists. Uh, the newly elected governor in Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, during the campaign said, look, I'm not going to oppose choice. There was a moment where choice was becoming popular with parents after the pandemic. But I think that the issue really is that as we see all of these bills enacted in red states, it's not a bad thing. But the question then is, where's the supply going to come from? I mean, right. I'm not convinced. And we just had governor, um, former Governor Daniels of Indiana um, out here at Hoover virtually um, during National School Choice Week to talk about this issue. And the governor was really on to something when he pointed out, look, he, he was very proud of his record in Indiana. They enacted very robust private school choice bill. But what he acknowledged that was a lot slower to come to fruition uh, than he had hoped was the sort of field of dreams. If you build it, if you pass choice legislation, will you see a lot of new private schools come into the marketplace to absorb and take these students who are now qualified for choice programs? And unfortunately, we don't have a good understanding of how to make that happen. The supply, we, don't, we, we haven't come up with good policy solutions to create more supply. We figured out how to pass choice laws. Education savings accounts are an exciting new option to give families direct money from the government to use on educating their kids. And that can be done in micro schooling, it can be done through tutoring, all sorts of things. 
but we need more providers. Uh, and I don't think we've cracked that nut yet. Mm. So we've touched on Chicago. We've talked on Los Angeles. You mentioned uh, Washington, D.C. a while ago. Um, give our listeners um, one city to look at in terms of kind of the future clash between government and teachers unions over who essentially calls the shots. I'm going to go to Chicago. I, I mean, I'm just going to go back there because I I don't think two things have happened. We already touched on one. Um, but, you know, some of this stuff is really under the radar, given that the pro the crime problem is sucking up all the oxygen in the room out there. Right. I don't think people really appreciate what it means to shift back to an elected school board. I mean, the research is quite mixed on whether mayoral takeovers really are game changers. But what we do know is that historically, when you ensconce the power of the school system in the mayor's office, you create a single line of accountability with a great deal of visibility. And when it comes to issues like um, uh, corruption uh, in terms of fiscal management, uh, mayoral control has a much better record uh, in cleaning that up than does a very parochial-minded local elected school board. Add to that one other thing, which is that the legislature in Illinois recently, I think this was a year and a half ago, or maybe two years ago, they enhanced the power of the Chicago Teachers Union in collective bargaining. The, right. Long ago in 95, they had kind of scaled back and said, okay, you can't bargain these issues, but you can bargain these issues. They've now gone all in. So you've had two things happen. You've given the union more power over the breadth of collective bargaining, and you've returned a governance structure that is going to be more amenable to the union being powerful. So if you think the CTU has been powerful before, I don't think you've seen anything yet. So Godspeed to whoever takes over that uh, that that city in the mayor's office, and particularly the superintendent, because I think they're going to see, you know, maybe to link back to LA since we were doing that LA Chicago thing today, they're going to see a lot of what the superintendent in LA has had to see, which is LA isn't Miami. In Miami, the superintendent's cult of personality, tenure there, success in raising student achievement, really went a long way. I think to drive support in the business community and among the public. And the union was nothing like it is in LA and Miami. So I think we're going to see that in Chicago. I would point you, Michael, to another California city, and that would be San Francisco. Uh, and I mentioned that because, uh, as you alluded to, Chicago is about to transition to uh, its schools being governed by an elected school board. San Francisco um, has a board of education, and there was a recall election there in February 2022. Three members of that board got tossed. People upset with them in part because of COVID, but also because the school board was spending its time renaming schools and so forth. And voters just thought, you know, the hell with this. Uh, it does beg a question if Chicago has a recall law or not. I don't think so. I don't think so either. But maybe what you'll see, though, is uh, the point is if you do have a governor elected school board, maybe that puts more pressure on the education establishment because you have, if you will, just a sort of a, a more intimate connection between voters and school officials. Not, In other words, it's not the mayor. You're actually going to members of a board. Yeah. I mean, the trick with these these urban school boards is that especially, I mean, putting 20, creating a 20 member school board. The problem is that it's really hard. Like in, like what you said in San Francisco is right. I mean, the board went way too far. The mayor was calling them out for not being serious about reopening schools. And the electorate was able to toss, uh, in liberal San Francisco, they tossed out two, two lefty school or three super lefty school board members. But the issue with these large boards is that think about how accountability works in that setup. If they run on staggered terms, which they do, and you've got 20 something members, you're talking like it's going to take a decade of organized political effort to try to unseat them. That's just too high a bar. I mean, even for the U.S. Congress, you're able to toss the bums out of office every two years if they do something the public doesn't like. So, Well, there's yeah. one other issue, too. If I'm running for that school board, I need money to run my campaign. Where am I going to turn to for money? Uh, money matters probably in the big districts. You're going to turn to the teachers unions, but what matters in the typical American school district, of course, is boots on the ground. And, uh, you know, and that's another thing. Turnout is so low in these elections that it's unfortunate because when you, when you have these referenda, like you do in Chicago, um, uh, or when you ask the public, not referenda, but when you ask the public, whether they support elected school boards, everybody's like, of course that's democracy. But then when you look at whether they turn out in these elections, they don't. So, you know, it's a bit of a challenge convincing people that sometimes it's in their own interest to turn power over to a mayor that has appointment authority. But I think in the long run, it's shown to promote and enhance accountability in these systems. 
So the future of unions having uh, outsized influence, teachers unions having outsized influence in American politics, Michael, does it continue or are we seeing the pendulum starting to shift in the other direction? I think it continues. I, um, they're the biggest threat to them is not the defeat from some other interest group, you know, these parents unions or parents rights groups. Um, it's the threat is this decline in enrollment. And right. so, you know, uh, during the pandemic states had hold harmless funding provisions, like in California, where it didn't really matter if you were bleeding students and losing uh, revenue because the state came in and saved you. Well, the question is, after all that federal COVID relief money dries up, and it will, mm. districts that have made commitments and don't have the student enrollment, either because of exodus, because the schools aren't performing well, or just demographic changes, that's where the unions are really going to have to have a come to Jesus moment. And they're going to have to decide, all right, are we going to narrowly focus on bread and butter issues and maybe tolerate smaller workforce sizes for steady pay? Or are we going to continue to engage in this dalliance with this broader progressive agenda? Um, I don't think that's going to work when they're when they're losing enrollment share. So that's that's what to watch. Okay. Finally, tell us what are you working on these days, Michael? I'm working on a longer term project. I'm working on a book on the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a working title yet, but uh, most recently was thinking about it in the terms of something like a quote: "They're not yours to control." That they're being schools. Um, and the book's going to provide a lot of evidence that most of the decision-making during the pandemic about when and where and how schools reopen were driven by political science and not public health science. Um, so that's longer term. And then shorter term, I've got an interesting project on teacher union endorsements in school board elections. I've written a lot on this, but this is new. Um, this project finds evidence that teacher union endorsements of incumbents is tied to teacher salary increases in the year before the election, but has a much smaller uh, to no relationship with student academic improvement in the district before the election. So it goes to that question that Randy Weingarten is always talking about, which is, is what teacher unions advocate for focused on teachers or students? And she likes to say that they're one in the same, um, be providing some empirical evidence to suggest maybe that's not the case. Very good. Michael, I sure enjoyed the conversation. I think the one thing about this conversation about education unions, it's not going away anytime soon, is it? That's for sure. Great to be with you, Bill. Thanks. My pleasure. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website, hoover.org, at the beginning of the broadcast. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Michael Hartney and Hoover's fellowship to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. We'll be talking about California matters with my colleague, Leo. Ohanian. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.